Oftentimes, it's the last words that someone speaks that we remember most, right? Usually, the last words that someone speaks are the words that mean the most to them. They're the words they don't ever want you to forget. And so the last thing someone says, usually, we remember. To illustrate my point, I'll call us all to remember, all of us who are familiar with good movie making, we've all seen and we're all fans of the movie Braveheart, right? What was the first word spoken by Mel Gibson's character, William Wallace? I said first, first words. See, you're illustrating my point. No one knows what the first words he spoke in the movie Braveheart was, but everyone remembers the last thing that he said, freedom. And that's because his last words carried so much weight. It encapsulated everything he was about. It encapsulated everything that he wanted to convey in that moment was the word freedom. And so that's what we remember from that movie, from his lines. Others, less inspiring, but meaningful nonetheless. Winston Churchill, he did a lot in his life, had a, had a wild life. And before he slipped into a coma and, and later passed away, he looked at his family and he said, I'm bored with it all. <laughs> he was tired. <laughs> he was tired. And then the 20th century playwright Wilson Misner He looked at his family from his deathbed and he said, I want a priest, I want a rabbi, and I want a Protestant minister. I'm hedging all my bets. (laughs) They're silly examples, but they illustrate a truth for us that we, we all know to be true. The last thing someone says is meaningful. People don't waste words and waste time in the final moments that they're spending with the people they love. And so that's why today we're going to end our summer series on discipleship and what it means to be a disciple of Jesus by considering the last words the Gospels say he spoke to us. And and we call it the Great Commission. You can go ahead and turn there in your Bibles if you'd like to, Matthew 28. And we'll read from from that uh, chapter in just a few moments. We'll start in verse 18, but not, not yet. As I was writing this sermon, I was reminded of a conversation I had with a friend of mine about a year ago, maybe, maybe a little bit more. A long-time believer. He's been a believer just about as long as he can remember. Now he's grown, he's married, he has a career. And we were talking, and he wasn't having a crisis of faith. I don't want you to hear me say that, but what he was conveying to me was, you know, whenever he was a kid, he always had something he was looking forward to. He had youth, he had high school ministry, he had college ministries, he had all of the things that he was involved in. But now he's married, he has a career, and his exact question was, what now? What next? He wasn't saying it, but the sentiment that he was conveying, I think a lot of us might be able to relate to, and that's he was bored. Like, what am I working toward now? As I was growing up, I always had that that next thing that I was working toward, and now... He wasn't questioning his faith. He wasn't looking to walk away from the church, nothing like that, but he just bored. And the problem was because he had equated the Christian life with church attendance, moral living, Bible study, and waiting for heaven. You know, that, that, was, that was the vision that had been cast to him. And, and that was highlighting a bigger problem. 
And the bigger problem was that he didn't understand what we're going to talk about today. Jesus did not call his disciples, and by extension us, to a life of boredom. He didn't call us to a life of just being good people and waiting to die. He called us to a life full of mission and ministry. He called us to a life full of, if we will obey his last words, adventure and spiritual conquest like we would never, ever imagine in our lives. And so today, I want us to to leave here with two main takeaways. The first one is that the Great Commission is not a, a, it's not a call for the spiritual Navy SEALs. It's not a call for the people who just, God did something really special in their lives and made very clear to them, this is what they're supposed to be about. Now, the Great Commission is in the Bible as a command to all who follow Jesus. The, the Great Commission is not an option. Participation in the Great Commission is required of everyone who follows Jesus. That's the first takeaway. And the second one is that he doesn't call us to a life of boredom. He calls us to a life, if we will obey him, if we will follow him, a life so much greater than anything we could ever comprehend, anything we could ever map out and plan for ourselves. If we'll obey him, if we'll follow him. So let's start uh, our time together in Matthew 28, 18 through 20. And Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age." And with those words, Matthew puts down his pen. Matthew ends his gospel account with those words, as if to leave those words ringing in our ears. And in fact, three of the four gospel accounts that we have in our New Testament end the exact same way. Jesus gives his great commission and they put their pen down. Why? Because they understood how important the great commission was to Jesus. They understood that whoever read all that they had written up until that point and believed in this Messiah they told us about, whoever was going to be a disciple of His needed to care about this as much as Jesus cared about it. Whoever was going to be His disciple, they needed to be motivated by these last words. So three of the four gospel accounts records this, and they put their pen down. So what I want us to spend our time doing today is answering the question, why? Why was the Great Commission so important to Jesus? And why should it be totally unfathomable for us to consider that there could be people out there who claim to be Jesus' disciples, but they spend very little to no time, no attention, no energy working toward fulfilling the Great Commission. So why was it so important to Jesus and why should it just be unimaginable that anyone could claim to follow him and yet not think about or or work toward the Great Commission in any meaningful way? If you've read the four Gospels, you've noticed a theme throughout them. And that theme is the kingdom of God. Kids, there's kingdom. The kingdom of God 
permeates all four gospel records, uh, accounts. In 89 chapters that comprise those four books of our New Testament, those four gospel accounts, 89 chapters, Jesus references the kingdom of God 125 times. It was not a minor issue for him. I would argue that it was first and foremost for Jesus' teaching and his ministry was teaching about the kingdom of God. And so it was everywhere as he talked. In all of his illustrations, and all of his parables, and all of his teachings, you could almost always find something to do with the kingdom of God in it. And it wasn't only for him that he wanted to be teaching about the kingdom of God. It wasn't just his ministry. He expected his disciples to carry a ministry that, that mirrored his. And keep in mind, when I say disciples, I'm talking also about us. By extension, those of us who have believed in Jesus, we are counted as disciples of Jesus now. But in Luke 9, we read an account of one of the first missionary journeys ever taken, and Jesus sends his 12 disciples out uh, on a missionary journey. And so in Luke 9, 1 through 2, we see the directions or the instructions that, Luke, or that Jesus gives the disciples. It says, And he called the twelve together, and he gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. So Jesus sends them out to, with the authority to cast out demons, the authority to do miracles, all in support of this thing that they're proclaiming. And what were they proclaiming? The kingdom of God. So Jesus, he proclaimed the kingdom of God all the time. He talked about the kingdom of God all the time. And then he sent his disciples out as missionaries to proclaim the kingdom of God. But also, what did he teach them to pray for? When they asked, what do we pray for? How do we pray? Teach us to pray. He said, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So the first thing Jesus teaches his disciples to pray for, to ask God for, is your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. So they proclaimed the gospel, they prayed for the gospel, and Jesus told them to seek first, what? The kingdom of God. So the kingdom of God was primary for Jesus, and it was primary for what he was teaching his disciples about. But I was having coffee with a friend of mine uh, this week, and we were talking. I had no intentions of asking this question, but it was fitting. So I said, if someone were to ask you, what does it mean to seek first the kingdom of God? What would your answer be? And he kind of laughed, and he gave an answer that I think is probably the same answer that most of us would give, which is very uncomfortable and unsure, and said, I guess read your Bible a lot and go to church. <laughs> And that's what I think most of us think of when we think of seeking first the kingdom of God. It's kind of a theological idea that we have that has no handles on it. It's, we don't know how to implement that into our lives. But I think Scripture gives us a little bit of insight into what it looks like to seek first the kingdom of God. What is it? If I were to ask you... <laughs> What, is, what will it look like if God answers your prayer and his kingdom comes to earth as it is in heaven? What will that look like? Most of us, we wouldn't know if he answered because we don't know what we're looking for. 
The same would be if I asked you to follow in the first missionary's footsteps. Go proclaim the kingdom of God. What would you proclaim? I think Mark 1 gives us some insight. Mark 1, uh, verses 14 and 15. It's the beginning of Jesus' ministry. It says, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God, saying, so he was proclaiming the gospel of God by saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. For Jesus... The kingdom of God, proclaiming the kingdom of God and proclaiming the gospel, they were almost one and the same. If, if, they were, if they were separate at all, they were so near to one another that he couldn't do one without doing the other. He couldn't proclaim the gospel without proclaiming the kingdom of God. He proclaimed the gospel of God by proclaiming that the kingdom of God is at hand, therefore repent and believe the gospel. They were one and the same for Jesus. And so one just kind of intro into this conversation question that I would pose to us is, is proclaiming the kingdom of God and seeking the kingdom of God by extension is the same thing as proclaiming the gospel. Can we truly say of ourselves that we're seeking first the kingdom of God if we're not proclaiming the gospel to the lost. I don't see a way that, that we could. But how is the kingdom of God, proclaiming the kingdom of God, seeking first the kingdom of God, how is that related to the Great Commission? Most of us know how proclaiming the gospel relates to the Great Commission. The Great Commission you know, requires us to go into the nations where people don't know Jesus, and we have to proclaim the gospel so that they know who Jesus is, so that they can believe in him, so that they can become his disciples. And we'll talk about that in a little while. But less clear for us is how does the kingdom of God and proclaiming the kingdom of God, seeking the kingdom of God, how does that relate to the Great Commission? Because what we just read in Matthew doesn't explicitly say anything about the kingdom of God. I think partly it's, it's instructive for us to realize, again, how closely these things are related when we realize that the first three times we see the word gospel in the New Testament is in the phrase gospel of the kingdom. So again, it's, it's intimately related. And so then that leads us to the question, well, then what is the gospel? If I asked most of us in here, what is the gospel? Most of us would say something along the lines of God became man, lived a perfect life in the person of Jesus, died on the cross uh, as an atonement for our sins, rose from the grave, ascended into heaven, sits at the right hand of God so that all who believe might not perish but have everlasting life. And to that I say, amen. <laughs> if someone asked me, what is the gospel? That's the answer I would give too. That's a good short synopsis of the saving message of the gospel. However, I think if we look a little bit more closely at the teachings of Scripture and the Great Commission, we'll see that that's a facet of the gospel, of the kingdom. But that's not the whole thing. That's, that's a, the message of how we receive individual salvation. But it's not, that doesn't encompass the whole gospel of the kingdom. You remember from Mark, Jesus was going, proclaiming the kingdom of God is at hand, therefore repent and believe. 
So repentance and belief was in response to proclaiming the gospel of God, the gospel of the kingdom. And so I th the question is obviously, well, how does that relate to the Great Commission? Well, Jesus began the Great Commission by saying, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Why did he begin with that? There's some ideas that I've always had and Frankly, I've, I've been wrong. Um, but the reason he, was, he began with all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, go therefore and make disciples, was because he was sending his disciples into pagan nations. He was sending his disciples into nations that by definition, as pagan nations, they were ruled by spiritual entities hostile to the message of the kingdom of God, hostile to the gospel. And that's not something that we have a box for a lot of times. That's not something we talk about a lot. So I want to camp out on this idea just for a moment, just so that we can see how much it permeates our scriptures, this idea of nations being governed by spiritual entities and that, that frankly, scripture calls gods, lowercase g. They're not the same in essence as our God. They are created beings. They are finite. They don't have all the power. They don't have all the knowledge. They are uh, only able to work in ways that God allows them to work. However, Scripture calls them lowercase g gods. And it's important for us to see how prevalent it is in our Scripture that they rule over the nations, that they rule over, over people, because that relates directly to the last thing Jesus said in, in the Great Commission. So first, I'd tell you to think about just how regularly in the Old Testament, how regularly do you read about the nations that worship Baal or the nations that worship Molech? It's everywhere. Just like Israel was known as the, God, as the nation that worships Jehovah, the nation that worships Yahweh, all the other nations were known by the, the gods they worshipped, and those weren't make-believe entities. Those were actual spiritual beings that they were... Uh, sacrificing to, in some cases, sacrificing their children to, um, just so that they could worship them. We see kind of a, one example of this in, in a neat story in 2 Kings 5, the story of Naaman. If you're familiar with the story of Naaman, um, I'm just going to kind of recap it for those of us who aren't as familiar with it. But Naaman was uh, an official, an officer in the Syrian army. He contracts leprosy. And an Israelite slave girl in Syria, in his home, uh, comes to him and tells Naaman, hey, if you go to Israel, there's a prophet there named Elisha, and he can heal you. And so presumably Nathan, Naaman had exhausted all of his options and everything that he could have done in Syria. So he says, okay, I'll go give uh, Israel's God and Israel's prophet a shot. So he gets his entourage together. They go uh, to Elisha's house. Elisha is less than impressed, and he just says, go dip in the Jordan River seven times, and then after that, you'll be healed. And you might remember that Naaman was upset about that because he, he was a high-ranking official. He had come all this way, and Elisha just tells him to go dip in a dirty river seven times, and then you'll be healed. But he decides to do it. He's come all this way, and he goes, and he dips seven times, washes himself seven times. And on the seventh time, he comes out, and he's clean. Leprosy's gone. And 1 Kings tells us that in that moment, he, he knew that the God of Israel was the one true God. This was the real, true God. 
But he had a problem. He was going to have to go back to Syria. And Syria was not a, a nation or a people that worshipped Israel's God. They worshipped a God named Ramon. And so he goes to Elisha and he says, I, I know that Israel's God is the one true God, but I'm going to have to go back to Syria. And when I go back to Syria, my master is going to require me to help him into Ramon's temple so that he can worship and sacrifice to him. And he was essentially asking, uh, asking Elisha, is that okay? <laughs> I, I know who the one true God is. I'm going to worship him. I'm going to sacrifice to him, but I've got to do this, this thing over here with Ramon's temple and my master. Is that okay? And Elisha says, go in peace. But then Naaman asks for something really strange to our, our ears. He says, can I have two mules of dirt to take back with me? Dirt. Why does he want dirt? <laughs> because, <laughs> that's a good, good joke. Because <laughs> he wanted dirt because that was holy ground. That was Jehovah's dirt. That was from Israel, from the holy land. And he told Elisha, he said, I will not worship. I will not sacrifice to anyone else except for Israel's God. And so he wanted what he perceived as Israel's God's ground to take home with him so that he could worship and sacrifice on that God's ground. So there are some cultural implications in there. I'm not saying that all of that is, is an exact science. There are some of that that's culturally informed, but it's not far from what we see when Scripture kind of removes the veil a little bit and lets us see the spiritual realm. Maybe you remember Daniel 10. In Daniel 10, Daniel's in distress and an angel is going to minister to him. And when the angel finally arrives, what does he say? He says, I was late. Do you remember why? He was late because he says, the prince of Persia resisted me for 21 days. So Persia's prince, spiritual prince, uh, that's modern day Iran for those who are curious. Persia's prince resisted me for 21 days until the Michael the archangel came and helped me prevail. And so then I was able to come to you. And then before he leaves, he says something else very similar that's also instructive to this conversation. In Daniel 10, uh, verses 20 and 21, the angel is about to leave Daniel, and this is what he says. But now I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. So he's going to encounter him again. And when I go out, behold, the prince of Greece will come. So Greece has a prince as well. But I will tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. There is none who contends by my side against these except Michael, your prince. So the prince of the Jews, the prince of Israel. So there we, we see this idea of certain spiritual entities having rulership over certain people, certain areas. Um, it bleeds over into the New Testament. It might be, we might think, okay, well, that's just Old Testament weird prophetic stuff, but it comes into the New Testament too. Ephesians 6.12 is a verse that I think a lot of times we just kind of read over and we understand the gist of it, but we just move past it. But Ephesians 6.12 says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Those words, rulers, authorities, powers, forces, those are biblical words, descriptions of 
people both on, in our realm, the terrestrial realm, and spirit realm who have authority over specific people, specific places. Those, that's what that's referring to in our New Testament. And the last one I want us to see, because it lends itself directly to the Great Commission, is Jesus' words. Jesus in John 12, 31 and 32, he said, Now was the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. What did Jesus mean exactly by that? When you look around, do you perceive a world in which Satan and all of the, the darkness has been cast out? Is it absent of our world today? If you would answer yes, you're, you're living in a different reality than I am. Everywhere I look, I see evidence that the spiritual darkness, the spiritual influence of our spiritual enemy is still very real, very present. So Jesus couldn't have meant that he was expelling him. Jesus meant he was casting him out of authority. Jesus was talking about the cross here. And he said, when I am lifted up, the ruler of this world will be cast out. I will overcome. I will take all authority in heaven and on earth through my death and my resurrection. It's going to be mine. And so that's what Jesus was referring to in the Great Commission. When he said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, he was saying, I took it. <laughs> I overcame. I conquered sin and death. I conquered Satan. I conquered the ruler of this world. I cast him out. And guys, that's what we do when we take part in the Great Commission is we go to places of the world who haven't heard this message and we proclaim it. We proclaim that Jesus has overcome, that Jesus has given freedom and life and liberty to everyone who believes in His name. We proclaim the kingdom of God has come on earth as it is in heaven, that the ruler in heaven is now the ruler on earth and everyone and everything and every spiritual power that anyone worships is subservient to the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth. Repent, therefore, and believe the gospel. That's what we proclaim when we take part in the Great Commission. That's what we're doing. And can I just pause and say, that's not boring. <laughs> that's not a boring Christian life to go into spiritual darkness, to invade our spiritual enemy's territory and proclaim the message of the one true king who has all authority in heaven and on earth, who has overcome them, who has come not to condemn the people who live there, <laughs> but to tell them he loves them. That's what we do when we proclaim the gospel where it's never been heard. We invite people to join Jesus' kingdom. We invite them to take part in the life and the liberty that is only available to people through His name and His name alone. That's why the Great Commission was so important to Jesus. Because he had overcome the, the ruler of this world. He had cast him out of, out of authority. And so he sent his disciples to herald that message to the rest of the world. That's why it's so important. It wasn't only the kingdom, though. Jesus cared about individuals. 
So Jesus cares first and foremost about extending his kingdom. But we see in John 3.16 that the reason God sent his son into this world is because he loved this world. He loved the people of this world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. 2 Peter 3.9 says that God desires that none should perish, but that all should reach repentance. 1 Timothy 2.3 says that God desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. God's heart desire is that nobody dies without hearing this message. And Jesus' plan for accomplishing that, plan for fleshing out that desire was his disciples, was the people who follow him, was, was their mouths, their testimony. That's how the message was going to spread. That's how the invitation to enter the kingdom of, of life was to be extended through our mouths, through the mouths of disciples. But we know that not everybody hears. And we know that although God desires all hear, all come to a knowledge of the truth, all repent, all be saved, we know that. But we see the reality around us that, that a lot of people are born in areas of the world where they will be born, they will live an entire life into old age, and they will die. They will never meet one person who is a Christian capable of sharing this message. And so we ask the question, what happens to them? And Paul asks the same question and, and gives us some insight into the answer in Romans 10, uh, verses 13 through 15. He says, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him in whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. I don't have to elaborate on the fact that feet are not pretty. They are not beautiful. And before anyone wore closed-toed shoes and everyone was in sandals, they were even less beautiful. But Paul said that that is the most beautiful thing to God. The feet of the people who take the good news of the gospel of the kingdom of God to the people who don't hear it yet, who don't know it yet. God thinks those feet are beautiful. And so that's the reason we at Harvest Church are about to begin leaning our weight into the unreached people. Until this point, we haven't leaned. We had COVID. We had all of the things. Um, but we're beginning to lean into missions to the unreached. And the reason is because we want God to think our feet is, are beautiful. We want God to see our heart for the nations. And we want him to say, that's my heart too. That's why we want to go to the unreached. Guys, 3 billion people, 40% of the world's population today, nearly half of the world's population today, live in areas that I was just talking about, among people who I was just talking about, where they will live their entire lives and die without ever hearing the message of the gospel. For those of us who like numbers, that's 66,000 people dying every single day who never had a chance to hear. 
And our question, oftentimes, is, God, God, how could you allow that to happen? How could you allow that many people to be born, live, die, never have an opportunity to hear? The answer should unsettle us. I hope it will unsettle us. The answer is because 2,000 years ago, Jesus gave this great commission. And for 2,000 years since then, there have been disciples of Jesus who have not sought first the kingdom of God. The reason all of those people still live in unreached areas among unreached people group is because for 2,000 years, disciples of Jesus have sought their kingdom first over his. It's because they've been apathetic. The unsettling truth is that if we as Harvest Church and we as individuals, individual disciples of Jesus, if we're not pouring ourselves out for the sake of the Great Commission, those people, their fate is in some ways on our shoulders too. They're our responsibility too. And so our question needs to change from, God, how could you allow that to happen? And it needs to become, God, how do you want to use me? God, what will you do with my life to help further your kingdom on this earth? How will you use my life to bring your kingdom to this earth as it is in heaven? How will you use my life to save the people you love? That's the question we need to be asking. That's what we need to be worried about. The Great Commission, y'all, that was Jesus' how-to seek the kingdom of God. The Great Commission was his final instructions for his disciples of this whole time I've been telling you to seek first the kingdom of God. I'm leaving now. This is how you do it. You seek first the kingdom of God by proclaiming the kingdom of God, proclaiming that I have come, that I have overcome, that I, I rule, I reign, proclaim my glory, proclaim freedom to the captives, proclaim life to those who are still dead. That's how you seek first the kingdom of God. But the obvious truth is that not all of us can do that. Not all of us can go. There are reasons that some of us can't go. But I want to say very clearly and definitively, that does not mean that you're not called to participate in the Great Commission. All of us, it's a command, all of us are required to participate in the Great Commission. All of us can pray. All of us can seek out specific missionaries. If you need missionaries to pray for, I can give you some. We can all look at joshuaproject.com and we can find unreached people groups to pray for. I'll say that website again. It's an incredible website, joshuaproject.com. If you go to that, you can find unreached people groups, unreached areas. You can find specific things that you want to pray for. You can find uh, what languages still need a New Testament. I'll give you one right now, the Kurdish people who we used to... Um, <laughs> where we used to live, they're still, they're waiting. Kurdish people, pray that they get a New Testament. 
we can all pray. We can pray that God raises up new Christians, workers to send them out into the harvest. We can pray that he gives dreams and visions. We can pray all the time we can pray. Another way that we can all take part is we can all give. We all have, if we don't have any room in our budget, we can find room in our budget to give so that those who can go are able to go. Listen, going to the nations, it's expensive, especially from America. It's an expensive endeavor, especially for one person to take on his shoulders by himself. We as a body can give whenever we know people are going to make it easier for them, to make it feasible for them. We can give of our resources if we can't go. But the caution that I want to give to us here is I don't want any of us to just assume that we're in the praying or the giving camp. Because that's, that's what I think is oftentimes our default. Well I, well, I look at my circumstances. I see my occupation. I see my job. I see my family. I see my kids. I see my parents. I see all of these th- reasons for me not to go. And therefore, my phase of life, I'm probably just not supposed to go. I'm supposed to be in the praying and the giving camp. But all of those things I just, <laughs> I just noted as reasons not to go, they sound a lot like things Jesus used to tell people, hey, leave that, forsake that, and follow me. If it wasn't an excuse for them in the New Testament, it's not an excuse for us today. And so what I'd encourage us all to do is ask God, what's my role? And determine that you're going to say yes, regardless what his answer is. Don't ask him, what what do you want me to do? Knowing that you're going to ignore him if he tells you something you don't want to hear. Or don't ask him, what do you want me to do? If you've already prepared an answer in your mind. If we've already made up our minds about what God's going to say, it makes it a lot harder for us to actually hear him when he speaks. Ask God, how do you want to use me to bring your kingdom to this earth as it is in heaven? How do you want to use me to seek first your kingdom instead of mine? So in October, most of y'all know, I I trust most of you know, in October we're going to take our first step into uh, ministry among the unreached. We're going to go to Dallas of all places. We're going to partner uh, with a church plant, uh, church planner there who's working among unreached peoples who have immigrated uh, to Dallas. And they remain unreached. They still don't know the gospel. They don't have churches in their languages. Uh, some of them don't have Bibles in their languages. And so we're going to go partner with this guy in October um, just to make inroads into some of these communities and, and help his efforts among those unreached. Lord willing, God will start a church there among some of these Kurdish people And then hopefully some of them go home. (laughs) Hopefully some of them take that light of the gospel that they receive here and they go home and they take it back where it's not. But then later this year, we're going to hear more opportunities, at least one, I hope two opportunities next year, um, where we're going to go overseas to go to the unreached areas and work with missionaries who are working to plant churches among the unreached. And what I want all of us to do now is begin praying, God, how do you want me to be a part of that? Again, the question's not, should I be a part of that? You are called to be a part of it. God, how do you want me to be a part of it? 
And my answer is yes, before I even hear your answer, God. How do you want me to be a part of it? And if you don't have a passport, get one. (laughs) Get a passport, just in case he says your time to go. (laughs) Listen, God's going to call some of us to go short term. He's going to call some of us, Lord willing, God, please let this be true. Some of us, hopefully he will call to go long term. Hopefully he's working in some of our spirits now to say, you know what, this is, I have, this is what I have for your life. You're, you're going to go long term. But the rest of us, we are here to participate in different ways. We're not sitting out of the game. And so would you join with me in praying that God would use our lives to bring his kingdom to earth? Would you join with me in praying that God would use harvest to bring his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven, and that we'll get to see that prayer answered Because we agreed to be obedient to the last words that Jesus gave his disciples, the thing that mattered most to him. Would you join with me? Father God, you are are so good, so kind to us that you gave us a way uh, to be a part of your, your kingdom, to be a part of of your family, God, not only as mere servants, but as children adopted by God. The same God that healed Naaman, that that he proclaimed is, is the one true God above all else. God, you are that God and you have called us to yourself. You have breathed your life into us. You have given us citizenship into your eternal kingdom to rule and to reign alongside our King and our Savior. God, help us to live in a way that seeks first that kingdom as long as we're here. God, help us to resist any any apathetic stance towards the unreached. God, help us to um, similarly (laughs) resist any apathetic stance toward the people in our neighborhoods and the people that we come across and work and at the store. God, you want your gospel proclaimed to them too. But God, give us a special burden, a special desire to see your gospel proclaimed to the people who have no access to it. And God, I pray that you would allow us to see your kingdom spread like wildfire because of our obedience to you. God, I pray that your spirit would be creating new burdens in us right now. People who never would have thought this was on their radar. God, I pray that you would be just in your holy and good way, just be crushing some of us right now bringing us into your will and and, into submission to Jesus' final commandment, the one that said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to him. God, let us live like we believe that to be true. God, we love you and we thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.